Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Thomas Copeland, one of the founders of Challenges NI, was our guest on today's show. We had a fantastic and wide-ranging conversation that included everything from his Brexit debate with Eddie Izzard and Sammy Wilson, to the Northern Irish identity, the intergenerational differences in our society, why our generation reads less literary fiction, and how that's affecting our intergenerational dialogues, and much, much more. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So, here's Thomas Copeland. Yeah, let's just let's just go for it. Uh, so, what is your first memory of politics in this country? Like, is there is there a moment where you realized this? Okay, this is something I find really interesting, or something I think is really important to the world. Um, like, do 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 you have a, a moment in your past like that, or is it kind of just something that gradually appeared and you don't really realize when it was? Uh, I'd say a little bit of both. When I was quite young, I did a thing called Model United Nations at school. Some other schools were very lucky and got to do it. It's essentially where you, you know, pretend to be the United Nations. And we did some of that at my school and traveled to other schools. But the really critical moment for me came, um, I just finished my GCSEs and at the time was convinced that I wanted to be a doctor. Um, I don't like sciences. I don't like maths. And I'm actually not terribly comfortable with the sight of blood. So why I thought I would want to be a doctor, I don't know. But I, st- I started my A-levels in chemistry, biology, maths and music. And two weeks, two weeks in, I changed that and I did history, French, politics and music. And I went to my careers teacher and said, I'm really not happy with chemistry. Can I change to, and at the time I said, can I change to religious education? Because I thought, well, I like ethics. It was discussions of abortion, euthanasia, those kind of things. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure I can muddle way, my way through the gospel study. I thought that will be interesting enough. We'll do religious education. And the careers teacher said to me, I'm sorry, Thomas, Religious education is full. Um, would, you, would you take a fancy at politics? And I thought, right, well, I don't know. I do like politics, but I'm not sure. And I went for it. And I've, I've never looked back. I mean, day one in our politics class, I knew, I kind of knew at that point that this is this was for me. I I adored the discussion. I adored the way that we talked about things. Um, I, and, and that was the moment for me that I decided, well, this is, I think, where my life wants to go. This is where my career wants to go. I'm never... In anything that I do, I don't think I'll ever be too far from politics, and that's one of those one of the ve- one of the very few moments in my life that I can say, you know, well, there, there's a talk show. I'll mention this on a podcast. There's a moment where something entirely coincidental completely changed the way that I looked at the world, and that was that was when I really got into politics. And from there, we started um, the, the Challenges NI project quite quite quickly after that. So I suppose that would be that would be the moment at which I thought, well. This is something that is really, for me, entirely coincidental. So it was that immediate, like, just snap, and you you were a little bit hooked? Yeah, because I, I remember walking into the class on the first day, and I must say a lot of it to do with was to do with you know, how the class was taught and that kind of thing, but we were having a, a round-the-room round discussion about uh, politics and what we thought about it, and I was just completely... I mean, I was absorbed in this conversation. And, and, sort of, and then it's one of those things that you do in your life when you look back and you say... Actually, I have always watched the news. I've always been the kind of person who was interested to hear what was going on in the government. 
I had been interested in, in international stories when we talked about in model United Nations. And I suddenly read all this stuff came flooding back to me to said, actually, Thomas, this makes an awful lot of sense to you. You like um, you like politics. And the other part was that when I was younger, I did quite a lot of music and I did quite a lot of drama. Um, and I have a slight I have a slight performing gene in me um, uh, that adores sort of the limelight. I love the sound of my own voice, which is great for a politician. Um, although I don't think I'll ever be a politician, but politics it represents that kind of intersection between you know the boring kind of policy stuff and and the drama that's on the front page and of the newspapers and, and what's happening um, in Downing Street and what psychodrama is it today and was that speech good or was that speech bad and communicating to the public and politics represented for me something that 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 walks the middle way between all of those things. And as a consequence of that, I've I've sort of I've taken it in, and I've never I've I've, I've never looked back. It was it was so I thank my careers teacher for that, as she often reminds me anytime I I, I see her um, uh, on the street or whatever. Mm, well, teachers have a habit of, of of liking to remind you of things like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like also. I have to point out the, the the beautiful irony of you choose not being able to do religious studies to study politics in Northern Ireland and the the, <laughs> the, 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 the crossover that, that may or may not be there. Yes. Well, because um, I, I, the, the part of religious education that I thought would be interesting was, was those ethical issues, you know, and I thought, well, the only place, obviously, that you would discuss abortion or euthanasia or perhaps, you know, transubstantiation would be in religious education. But it turned out it was critical to an understanding of what was happen, happening in Northern Irish politics. So I, I suppose I was aiming in the right place for religious education because I recognised I had an interest in those kind of issues. Um, and now I'm, I'm studying politics, philosophy and economics at university. And those philosophical issues are ones that um, uh, really interest me as well. And I suppose Northern Ireland represents a place where there's a melting pot between all of those issues, almost more than anywhere else, it's where you will find issues of um, ideology, less so economics, to be frank, and politics and, and ethics all in a, in a big melting pot and a mixing pot that will sit, you know, occasionally bubble and burst into a, a shower of some sort of drama and a political moment and then, and then disappear again. Um, so I was aiming for the right thing in ethics, but perhaps uh, my careers teacher helped me to refine the focus. Well, I would say there's there's definitely a few um, Marxists in Northern Ireland who would say that we don't have a really good sense of class consciousness. It's probably very much that we were based in like a religious consciousness kind of style of politics rather than one that sort of dictates our economic situation. And that's probably why we don't have such discussion of economic issues in the same way you would have in the UK with the kind of conservative versus labour like back and forth, like left versus right. But what, what, well, what moment yeah. did you realize that Northern Ireland was different? Well, this is this is again because um, I, I suppose you, there's for me there was never a moment, and I suppose if you ask anyone who grew up in Northern Ireland, always at the at the back of your head, you knew that this place was different. Um, and if you had a positive spin on it, you knew that this place was a little bit special and there was something different about Northern Ireland, about its politics, about its people. Um, so I, I, there was never a moment for me where it suddenly clicked. Oh, 
wow, you, you know, we really are different from the rest of the UK. Because growing up, I was born in December 1998. So I was born just after, a, you know, a, a number of months after the, uh, the Good Friday Agreement was ratified. So I'm very lucky in that I can view and have viewed Northern Irish politics as something that was fascinating, um, a little bit dramatic, almost, um, and I don't want to sound sort of glib, you know, fun and interesting. And I was never put in a position where I had to view it as, as dangerous or frightening or, um, you know, a, a real threat to my life. Um, and I'm very, I'm very blessed for that, as are other young people in my generation. But it was always one of those things right at, at the back of your mind. When we started the Challenges Northern Ireland project, that was just after I'd started my A-levels. And one of the first couple of things we did was organize some live events because I, I had said at the time, it was a friend of mine who studied politics with me called Jack O'Dwyer Henry. We were, we were 16 years old. And our problem was we felt that there were very few opportunities for young people to really engage in real life politics in Northern Ireland because, um, uh, because of the, the history of the Troubles. You could watch politics on TV or you could read the news. But we, we had never had the same culture of live debates, you know, in a, in a local church hall or live hustings where you have everybody across the spectrum there. Because of the history with the Troubles, it, it wouldn't have been safe to do so. But debates in that community setting were something that were, were completely new. Uh, and we kind of felt, we felt that in, in our area anyway, which is South Belfast, which is, a, a, again, a real melting pot of, of political identities and perspectives, we could try to host some of these events. So the first one we did was in January 2016, and get this, the, the title was, What's Wrong with NI Politics and How Can We Fix It? Which has got to be the most ambitious perspective for an event. We didn't fix NI Politics um, that evening, uh, as, sure? I'm sure, as I'm sure you've noticed. And I think I probably realized that that was another little step on the road for me when I realized, ooh, you know, this is perhaps a little bit more more difficult than I thought. You know, that kind of naivety and confidence that you have as a 16 and 17 year old, where you think you can set the world to rights. And it's so wonderful and needs to be harnessed. Um, that, that's what we had. And unfortunately, it didn't pay off. But there was probably another a moment, a light bulb moment in my head when I said, oh, this is, this is slightly trickier than I had anticipated that it would be. And, and, and thank goodness for it, because if political issues could be solved by you know, two guys in 16 and 17 year olds, then I would be very disappointed in our political class. But uh, <laughs> it's not the case. Like, do you think there's a certain novelty about Northern Irish politics for like, for younger people? In that, because, do you think, like, I, I kind of, uh, it just sort of dawned on me that maybe there's a big divide in, in the way in which people in this country, especially, will view politics because of that, gap between that older generation who had to live through the troubles through their mm. 20s and 30s and 40s versus people of our age and our generation who were ceasefire like the ceasefire babies do, do you think they have like less respect for our opinions about like political issues that are very northern ireland specific because we haven't lived through the trouble that they had to and do you think that's why it's difficult for Northern, for young people to get into politics in Northern Ireland? Are we seen as like just innocent, naive idiots who don't understand the, the wider context because we didn't have to live through some, some bomb scares? I, I, think, I think that's probably part of it. I'm always very conscious of, of saying that Northern Irish politics is 
fascinating or different or um, dramatic because th- there are, as in every political situation, real people who really suffer as a consequence of of inaction on the part of our government. And I think particularly of those who suffer from mental health. And there is undeniably a mental health crisis in Northern Ireland. So I'm always aware, you know, to feed that into the discussion as well, that it it really isn't just all fun and just all somebody standing up in, um, you know, uh, storms and having having a bit of a, a jibe at somebody on the other side. It is much more serious. When it comes to that intergenerational thing, I, I 100% agree. One of my... One of my prescriptions for the problems of modern life is that I think we have very poor intergenerational dialogue. And I say that actually, I think that's a UK wide thing. I think in every society, my generation and our generation, the experiences that we have had in Northern Ireland and actually much more broadly than that are more different than the experiences of our, of the generation above us than between any other generation on the planet. I mean, if you were born in 1910, the way that you lived your life was probably fairly similar to somebody who was born in 1870. Whereas in Northern Ireland and anywhere else, if you were born like me or like you in sort of, you know, the end of the 20th century, your life was radically different to somebody who was born in 1950. And that's about technology. That's about communication. And in Northern Ireland, that's about the role that that peace has had. And, and so coming back to your initial point, I definitely think that there is an element of um, uh, older people think that politics maybe is that they, they, the young people don't understand, you know, you aren't there, you don't know. And, and, and it's worth saying that some of that is justified. It frustrates me sometimes when I see young people in politics who deal with Northern Ireland's past in a kind of dismissive way, when in actually it, it should be taken seriously. And the reason that I can afford to make a joke about it or people can afford to be a bit dismissive is that, you know, you weren't there, you weren't there on Bloody Sunday, you weren't there at the Shanko bomb, you weren't there for the Grace Steel m- massacre. You didn't feel that vitriol that people felt, in, you know, at that time. But actually, that's a positive thing. As long as you have a firm understanding of what has happened in Northern Ireland's past, then I think it's a positive thing that you aren't as emotionally connected to what has happened. Uh, because that is obviously the best way to try to take a, you know, to, gl- to to transcend it and move above those kind of divisions and say, I understand the emotional connection that a generation of ours might have to those issues, but we as a generation are going to try to be the bigger men and women. Um, so, uh, listen, there's positive and negatives to to those generational divides in Northern Ireland. Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely something going on with the the intergenerational divide more and more so. And like I think you you've probably identified something that's quite quite accurate. It's it's definitely something that you see more and more in voting patterns as well. Like if you look at the last several elections in the UK, in the US, and in Northern Ireland, young people are grouping together in a way and voting for specific parties ones that offer a bit of, of hope in, in my eyes anyway, but the Alliance Party especially, just, just offering like a, a slightly different and more rational take on things. I was trying to find a quote that, that, that I, I, you made me think of, but I cannot find it. It's just in a book I'm reading at the minute. It's about, um, basically, the, he, it's, it's called The Organized Mind. It's by Daniel um, Levit, Levitan, I think, or Levitan. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. I've only read it. <laughs> but the 
the implication was that our generation are becoming less and less social and less and less empathetic towards people because of a couple of reasons. Um, we're not reading as much literary fiction and therefore we're not being forced to put ourselves in the in the shoes of someone else, like to quote Atticus Finch in my <laughs> from To Kill a Mockingbird, <laughs> like throwback to, to my English GCSE days. Like, you don't really understand the person until you walk around in, in their shoes or something like that, paraphrased. <laughs> but we don't have that as much because we're not reading as much literary fiction, or that was his theory anyway. And that's a real, like, I find that super interesting because we're not being, we have, we have no reason to interact in a way or uh, to have to understand other people's emotions. And you, um, there's a couple of, of studies that have shown that our generation are increasingly less empathetic and we don't feel like it's important for us to like understand other people's emotions and points of view in the same way that older generations feel that. And I, I, I thought it was a really interesting piece. And the other thing is that because um, social networks and social media has replaced some of our socializing, it, we interact with people or feel like we're interacting with people without actually getting any of the social benefits or cues that we would have in a normal face-to-face -face conversation and therefore we're finding it really difficult to like understand where people are coming from and like i really feel that could at least partially help to explain the the kind of culture war that's going on at the minute I don't know how bad you think it is in the UK, but in America especially, like, they have a real, like, young people are, like, lashing out um, in the form of protests, in the form of, like, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, in loads of ways, without any... It feels like they don't understand the older generation. Yeah. And I feel like I don't, in a way, sometimes. I'm like, I just... I don't, I don't quite get what it is. Like, am I making sense here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is part of what I kind of had alluded to earlier, which was that intergenerational dialogue is something that, no, I'm to be honest, I'm not sure whether it has happened in the past, but it is more important now than ever. If you look at the really big divisions in 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 Northern Ireland and in the UK and in America as well, a lot of them aren't well. The, the, the class is definitely involved in those things. But in, in America, for example, if you find you know a kid who's middle class and a kid from an inner city suburb in Chicago or whatever, they will probably have similar enough perspectives on stuff like Black Lives Matter. And some of that comes from social media because you'd have a greater awareness of what's going on around you. It's not just about what's happening you know, between your house and the end of the street. So that's one of the great benefits of social media. The, the downside... Uh, no, sorry. So it means that the big gaps in our society are between young and old. In Northern Ireland, we know that young people feel disproportionately um, what we would designate as other, and uh, much more so than older people. Um, we also know that in, in, in the UK, whether it comes to Brexit, whether it comes to the kind of culture war issues that you've talked about, um, uh, you know, uh, snowflakes versus gammons, that kind of thing, yeah, or whether basically. it comes to... You know, the last election, for example, it was less about whether you were based in the city and whether you were based in the in in, in in rural settings. It was less about whether you were working class and middle class and whether you were um not you know which one of those two you were. It was about whether you were young and whether you were old. 
and and I I have a, a fear in there that 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 gap will only continue to widen as the polarization effect takes place, where gradually those two paths start to diverge. Um, and it's worth saying that it it, it it will the world is accelerating so fast that the same things that have led to a huge chasm between an older generation now and a younger generation now, that chasm will only get wider. When you and I are at the age of parents and there are children who are our kind of age now, they will also, I believe, think radically different things to the way that we think. And that's an interesting concept to have in mind when you go about criticizing things that have happened in the past. You you do need to be aware of, well, how are people going to view my actions in 30 years' time? And that, that posterity uh, test is something that we've never had to really deal with before. But uh, yeah, uh, my, I think older generations, older generations and younger generations need to talk to each other more. Because often it's worth saying that, I mean, uh, to take a, a nice slightly out of date issue, something like gay marriage was a really big, um, in, in 2012 and 13 in the UK, and then slightly later in Northern Ireland. I would, I the older generations or the disproportionately older people who felt that they couldn't support that, I do not believe that they are inherently homophobic. I think that it was a lack of understanding. They had never sat down with a young gay person, even an older gay person, and said, well, you know, how do you feel about this issue? And ignorance um, or you know, a lack of understanding breeds ignorance, and then ignorance breeds a kind of inbuilt hatred that you don't quite understand. And that, that's a real danger. If you can go back to trying to understand people who are around you who hold different opinions, then often you find yourself agreeing on some pretty fundamental things. And that's the first step. So I, I, I do agree, I, I agree with what you're saying, but I think it's more than empathy um, because that's part of it. It's about sitting down with people and, and, and reading what other people have to say and saying, well, can I, can I understand where they're coming from? Um, uh, you know, because empathy is the next step from there. But I, I, I mean, I, I do. I find that interesting about reading literature. Um, I've never come across that before. One to ponder, I'm sure. I mean, I certainly read enough. But but then again, I'm not sure how much of Harry Potter has really helped me in my quest <laughs> to, to well, overcome sectarianism in Northern Ireland. But then again, <laughs> hey, well, Harry Potter. Like, what was it? Harry Harry Potter. Someone pointed out, like last uh last year there was a great tweet about about harry potter how it was you know someone said harry potter isn't relevant to the modern world and they were like yeah you know how how on earth could you think that you know gathering together against some dark power attempting to take away all of the lives of young people and the the prosperity of the future was irrelevant to today's society (laughs) um well i know that's an interesting concept because (laughs) something else i don't know and i'm all I always like to caveat things I say about, you know, I'm not sure what sort of teen literature was like in the 1940s <laughs> and the 1950s. But I mean, when I was growing up anyway, I, you know, I'm 21 now and the books that I read when I was 12, 11, 13, all of them had a, a hero or, or heroine who was also, you know, 10, 10 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 in their teens um, uh, fighting, you know, desperately against usually an adult of some kind who was oppressing them in some sort of fictitious, fantastical way with dragons or magic or whatever. So is it any wonder that young people feel as if they have been imbued with this sense of revolution? And they've probably (laughs) 
they've probably learned that from from reading literature. So there's the other side, isn't it? Actually, that you know that sense of, of young teen revolution that we have now probably in some way comes from that literature. On the other side, we're not reading enough literature to, or enough of the right kind of literature to learn how to empathize with people who are completely different from us. Well, one of the things that the study did say was that uh, it wasn't popular fiction or non-fiction it had to be like literary fiction so i think it was meant to be stuff that isn't just like real easy to read where you have to try and get yourself into the mind frame of the character just stuff that's not like i think i think their point was it's stuff that's maybe not easily consumable like just something Mm -hmm. like i think i don't think they would count harry potter (laughs) but then perhaps they perhaps it would i I don't know you'd have to ask the authors of the study This is this is part. This is why education is so critical as well. And I'm all, I always get a little bit nervous because occasionally you will see a sort of culture war headline come across your news feed that says something like "Snowflakes want to remove Killer Mockingbird from um, from GCSE education because it offends or whatever." And it's it's obviously an overly um, incendiary headline. But this is why you know studying GCSE English or even earlier it is really important. I mean, for most people. I wouldn't describe, I'd never describe myself as a socialist, for example. I try to keep myself as impartial as possible at all times. But for most people, you know, an inspector calls was their first real understanding of the concept of the distribution of wealth and the welfare state and helping other people and that element of political selflessness. Um, And the same can be said for numerous other books that you study at that age. So perhaps you're right. And it's worth saying that Social media has been fantastic as a form of education, but social media educates you in a way that's very different from the way that books educate you. During this lockdown, I've made an active decision, which is I've tried to read more proper full-length books, not newspaper articles, not magazines, not podcasts, not uh, you know uh, politics shows on the television that you download and watch later, because those are all great. But if you actually want to go deeper than that, you need to read... I mean, let's, I've got James Comey's book over there, finished that the other day, Kissinger on Kissinger by Winston Lord. People that you profoundly disagree with, you know, you can't, it sounds almost boring and sort of um, Luddite to say, but you know, the old ways sometimes are the best and sitting down and, and reading a proper book can be one of the most rewarding experiences um, of your life. Oh yeah, 100%. I'm on a big, um, I've, I've done a lot of reading during lockdown it's been a it's been a real real pleasure actually to sit and like get through the big pile of books that have been sat on my desk for way too long but the we did we you talked me, sort of vaguely there about the about the sort of snowflakes versus gammon culture war idea like dominic cummings has been inside number 10 reportedly pushing this idea of a war on woke and in the last general election, they were very up on attempting to use culture war issues as well. Do you think that, that the kind of intergenerational or um, that sort of division that has appeared in British politics, the 52, 48, the leavers, remainers, the um, somewheres or anywheres, as David Goodhart puts it, like, is that being encouraged or is that like a totally natural like level of polarization? Which do you think? Uh, again, I'm going to give a very middle ground answer and say it's a little bit of both. 
what was recognized in, in 2016 and before that, uh, and it's the same thing that happened in America and it happened in the UK as well, was that um, as a result of a number of things, the fact that younger generations feel radically different to older generations because of their experiences, because of the financial crash, because of the general loss, loss of direction and place in the world that the West has had, I believe probably since, you know, really the late 90s and accelerated since then because of a combination of those things. And also um, in the UK, because we had this enormous division between what was happening in London and what was happening in the rest of the country. The rise of, you know, a civil service, people, men in suits, women in suits, marching in and out and, and ordinary people feel that they had no stake in what was going on. And some of that comes back to the crash in particular in economic terms. What happened there was that the world turned into a kind of the people versus the establishment. And obviously, the, those in the establishment would say, well, hold on, well, you know, th- this, isn't a, this isn't a versus concept. We are, we are in the civil service fighting for you. We are in parliament fighting for you. But that perspective is invidious and persuasive. And clearly, the likes of Dominic Cummings has said... Oh, no, he he will probably argue that that it is a real thing that in, and I'm I, I don't have an eye in there so I don't know whether the civil service is secretly pitted in one direction or the other. What I would say is that didn't help was that on the day that um, on the day that Boris Johnson took to his press conference to defend Dominic Cummings, you'll remember that the, the civil service Twitter account sent out a tweet that that said that the Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings was, I think, arrogant and incompetent. Or something like that, and, and I imagine that. I, I believe never... the I, I believe the the quote quote was imagine having to work with these truth twisters. Yes. <laughs> well, it was funny, and there's there's definitely an element. You know, there's a grain of truth in there somewhere. But the problem is, it rather proved Dominic Cummings' point, which was that the civil service and the establishment was pitted in a certain direction, and it, actually, the process leading up to Brexit didn't help that either. I mean. Every person who Dominic Cummings or, 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 or Boris Johnson or ordinary folks would have painted as the establishment, they were all in favour of Remain. I mean, it was, it was the banks who were in favour of Remain. Um, people in the South tended to be in favour of Remain. Um, the politicians, disproportionately MPs, tend to be in favour of, of, of Remain. So that doesn't help when you seem to have all of the people that you regard as being the man, the people... Those who stand against the people are on the other side. And this is all about perspectives. That's it. So I forget what your original question was, to be honest, Josh, uh, but um, hopefully there's about... something interesting in there. Yeah, there's definitely a response there. It was just the war. I was just curious about your thoughts on the war on woke. Like You, you said there about the, the loss of a central position in the West or for the West in the world. Like, Is that like a tangible concept to everyday people? Do, do you think like the... the, the we can really like feel that as people over a 20 or 30 year period, like individually on like, like a street level. Like, is that something that's there? Definitely. I think that, um, and some of this does come back to, I mean, every country has a sense of nostalgia of of the past as well. America, for example, has always had a fairly clear direction in the world. It has been since the end of the first world war, the dominant superpower. Um, to put it, you know, to put a positive spin on it, they've been the world's policemen. Um, and in fairness, I mean, the good that has, the security good that has come from relationships with, with the United States have been 
um, sort of innumerable. Now, there are obvious downsides to all of that as well. But the point is that America has had a direction. One of the, one of the things that I see in, in the UK that is slightly concerning is that since the end of the Second World War in particular, I don't think we've really understand, understood what Britain's role in the world is. We're not a superpower. We can't, like America, you know, we can't, like America, scare off our, our enemies through diplomatic or, or military might alone. We need to be building allies and working together. What is the purpose of our country? Is it about exporting those things that, you know, uh, that, that our politicians say is what makes Britain great? Things like democracy, things like free speech, things like liberalism, um, Adam Smith and the rest of it, free trades. I, 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 I'm just, a, I think that sometimes people in the UK are a bit confused as to what Britain's role is. And again, that was what this whole global Britain play, thing played into. Uh, during the Brexit campaign, I don't really think, well, there's, there's def- definitely a, an element of nostalgia of, uh, you know, the role in the world that we had before. Some of that going all the way back to the empire. But I think more of it is to do with understanding what our purpose is as a country. I mean, a lot of countries in the world, in Africa, in East Asia in particular, your purpose as a country is is economic growth and prosperity for your people and fight harder in order to get a, a bigger stake in the world. But the UK is in a very strange position. We have a seat on the UK uh, on on the UN Security Council. We are one of the largest economies in the world. We have one of the highest standards of living of any country in the world, which means that this fight for economic growth doesn't really resonate with people because we think to ourselves, you know, well, why are we doing that? I mean, look at coronavirus. What is the point of being a really wealthy country unless you can have a fantastic response to a pandemic? Um, so I, I I think that that kind of loss of direction or understanding of and and, um, and and people appealing to both sides of that can work very well. I mean, the left and, and Jeremy Corbyn appealed to that brilliantly to say our purpose now as a country should be to, you know, look after our people and to be focused on on this country rather than sort of rather than externally. And he had a, a certain view of foreign policy. So I think that direction is something that I personally have an ever so slight feeling is, is something that, feed, that the, the ordinary public feel lost on. I'm cu- sorry. I'm just curious as to where you yeah. got that that stat or that 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 idea that the UK is one of the highest living standards in the world. That's 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 an interesting claim. Well, well, if we can, if we compare <laughs> just... Europe to Africa or even East Asia or even uh, you know uh, the West, maybe is the best way of saying that has a disproportionately higher standard of living than anywhere else in the world. Yeah, I would. I just. I'm always I'm always keen to like okay the UK is one of the largest economies and um we do have a like we do have a fairly high GDP per capita but even then we are only ranked number 26 in the world in GDP per capita and that is monstrously skewed by wealth and income inequality so I just yeah, I'm always there are 195 countries in the yeah. world though so well that's true but as if if we're one of the if we're say if so if we're the fifth largest economy and we have the twenty sixth highest GDP per capita, that kind of suggests that our our distribution of wealth is is kind of off. But do you think we need a role in the world, like as a country? I don't know. And, and I know that's that's a very uh, maybe vague idea, but like Brit, you get this idea that Britain has lost their role in the world, and and in a way. I get where you're coming from. The if you go back like four, five, six hundred years to like the colonial period and when like we when the um, Dutch East India Company were starting to get um, 
started and like european powers were moving out around the world and like taking over and or discovering or liberating whichever (laughs) whichever way you want to look at it but that was like britain hit their peak like well over a hundred years ago in terms of like what they were doing in the world whether you, you you measure that that impact as positive or negative is a completely different question but like their peak impact like britain's peak impact in the world is has come and gone yeah well it was probably you know like 1910 was our was was this country's peak impact in the world and i would say that it is disproportionately negative I, i'm not trying to say incidentally that that is a good that a direction in the world should be a positive and negative thing i mean look at the scandinavian countries for example seem to have a very clear purpose and a very clear role and a direction and that is is about sort of social welfare um some people would say uh, you know uh, they have very high taxes uh, and there's a consequence of that I can pay for extensive public services for people and there's a very there's a high standard of living there's a high cost of living but i think that there's a direction there that it, it is quite clear whereas in the uk we kind of feel as if we're not you know we're not america um, but we have much. We have very close ties to the United States, closer than nearly any. Well, closer than any other European country, and we're not fully European either. So we sort of teeter on the edge there, and I think uh, 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 and that's not necessarily a bad thing as well. Being a bridge between those countries was certainly something that was valued by the European Union when we were in it. When America needed to be on side of the EU, diplomatically, the UK was one of the well, was the principal country that could manage those kind of interactions because we're we are lucky enough to to sit between Europe and America geographically as well as politically. But what I'm, I'm not trying to say that it's a positive or negative thing, just that I'm not sure we realise what, as a country, um, we are aiming to be doing, if anything. Mm. Oh, maybe that's a better way to put it. Like, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a lack of overall understanding of what our country stands for in a way yes like america has their very defined american dream freedom Mm -hmm. and liberty and and in a way you see some of the 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 more libertarian wing of the conservative party kind of trying to preach that that kind of rhetoric I would say much more unsuccessfully um, than, that, than in America. That's not a positive thing or a negative thing. Absolutely. You know, there are huge numbers of negatives to that. But what I'm saying is that it exists as a, as a much more, not tangible, but as a much more firm um, concept, less abstract. Like, to what extent do you think the success of, of the phrase take back control was to do with that feeling of loss of like a like a grander purpose for the country versus people's feeling of like a lack of control in their own lives in a really like micro day-to-day level the the because i feel i feel like a lot of it just personally something i've been thinking about recently is how the lack of feeling like the, the that, that lack of control that we feel we have in the modern world with like big bureaucracy fit like beyond anything we can change with politics being like beyond anything we seem to be able to change even for the most like optimistic and positive people especially young people and and then you've got like yeah it's it's, it's something i'm still working on <laughs> But to what extent well, do you think you, you get that like play like which which the, the reason that the reason that slogan worked really well is that it appealed to nearly everyone of the constituencies 
that you have just mentioned, and it appealed to numerous sentiments within the average person, and even people who were on the Remain side. I mean, I was I'm 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 on record as being on the Remain side. I was I did a debate. You'll you'll love this at my old school. Me and Eddie Azar versus what? Sammy Sammy Wilson and another people from my school. Now the, uh, uh, the pupil contingent said relatively little, but I was there. But the, the reason that take back control worked really well, and people on the Remain side would tell you as well, is that it is an enormously effective slogan. And it represented all of those things for the people who wanted that overall direction as a country. That was in there. For people who, after the crash, um, wanted a, a much greater control as, uh, or felt that there was power bleeding away from even their local councils. You know, uh, one of one of the most interesting arguments that I heard from Lisa Nandy in the last Labour um, in the last Labour leadership election was this idea that uh, the reason take back control worked was because power had been taken away power is being centralised it wasn't in our local councils it wasn't you know with devolved mayors and the more devolution was the way to overcome some of those issues where if you wanted a change to happen I don't know on your street or maybe even to do with something much bigger than that, that, you know, taxes, how much are you being taxed? Don't be taxed more to be taxed less. It would be more effective if those kind of issues were sorted out at a council level. And I can see that appeal. Um, and that extends, incidentally, to issues of, um, you know, the Constitution. Uh, Keir Starmer says that he wants to see a more kind of federalised United Kingdom, and that would go a long way to... Um, that would go a long way to appeasing some of the uh, wishes of Scottish nationalists who want to see more control. Um, I, I don't know whether that's the right answer, but that take back control um, you know, slogan worked well as well there. It was not only where people, the perspective was, well, my local council, my local mayor is losing power. That's all going to London. And then it seemed as though, and it was a, a, a picture painted very successfully, that even London was now losing power and some of that was going to Brussels. All of that was voluntary, you know. At no point, at no point, did the European Union steal Britain's sovereignty. Um, but the, the sovereignty, the 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 go to Brussels was signed away, um, and that's again not a positive thing or a negative thing. That's you know anybody would tell you that that there were elements of things that Britain used to be able to do in its country that it, it couldn't do anymore, uh, and that might be a great thing. And there are overall fantastic and very altruistic purposes for doing such a thing, be it on climate change, be it on clamping, uh, clamping down on, on fraud or, or tax evasion, or even on uh, the role of multinationals. But that that power disseminating away from people was something I think resonated quite a lot. And that's why the slogan works on a personal level, as well as on a political level. Are you still a Remainer? Um. <laughs> I kind of, um, I, I do because of, because of where I want my career to go. And also, I think it's a healthy thing anyway. And I sort of this swings back to challenges in a way. I have always tried to remain as kind of impartial as I, as I can. And, and, and I find that quite freeing. Actually, I, I made a decision. No, no, it's worth saying that I definitely do still have political opinions on things, but I, I don't think that they would all correlate behind any you know, ideological flag or line in the sand um, and it's quite a freeing thing actually to be able to say once you remove the kind of personal connections that you might have by becoming i don't know a member of a political party or signing up or really believing in a in, in, in a policy it's extraordinary how much you can understand challenges to it 
when you really take a side on a political issue, as much as you want to say you remain open-minded, we have this thing called confirmation bias. I'm sure you know what that is. I'm sure where anything you you don't hear those things that might that might contravene your own opinion. You only hear those things and those stats and those pieces of evidence that justify and back up what you're saying. And for me, I've always tried to take an active position of I'm going to try to, if I can, remain impartial. And that means that I can hear and try to listen to facts, evidence, arguments on both sides, which is quite a freeing thing, but but very difficult to do as well. That doesn't answer the question, though. No. Um, <laughs> I, I, the honest truth is that I, I was a Remainer on, on the day of Brexit, thought to myself, I couldn't see a solution to the kind of problems that we had in, in, the, in the United Kingdom and in Northern Ireland. I couldn't see a solution to that where we hadn't left the European Union. I didn't think that a second referendum was going to solve those issues. I mean, you're talking about a culture war. I mean, how vicious all of the issues that we've talked about up till now are really, really vicious. And I couldn't see a world in which a second referendum that might, for example, have led us, you know, it would have been close. Incidentally, a second ref- referendum would not have been 80% remain, 20% leave, which would have been in some ways great because that could put the issue to, to rest. Because even if you divided those two numbers, you would still get over two referendums, you would still get a majority for Remain. But it was never going to be that close. I mean, anybody who actually understood what was going on and, and, and the, the, the 2019 general election there in December is evidence of that. Is um, that evidence of people wanting, like still wanting to go through it, through with it, like really? Or is that evidence of people just being like, oh, just get it the fuck out of the way and then we'll move on with our lives? Well, uh, I suppose there are two answers to that. One, it doesn't make a difference because the way that they voted in the general election in December probably would have been the same general sentiment that they would have voted in a second referendum. And two, I, I, I don't believe that it that it was as casual or um, a, a, as the kind of the picture that you you illustrate there was. I there was a real, and you will, you will hear this at, from from Labour MPs who stood in those kind of northern seats that we're talking about, Tory MPs who won their seats, there was more than a frustration. There was more than a casual irritance. There was a a deep-seated anger over that issue. And the Take Back Control slogan, they played wonderfully into that because you were telling people, take back control, vote for this and you'll have control back. And the perspective was that the people who were fighting for a second referendum for whatever altruistic, very sensible, pragmatic reasons that they gave, seemed to be standing in the way of that of a, of, of a referendum that was about more than Europe. It was about it was about a, it was about a, a huge chasm in our society um, caused by some of the things that we're talking about, and they go all the way back, incidentally, to deindustrialization and, and the opening up of, of this country to the world and, and free trade, which is you know something that that, that Tories. Um, talk about an awful lot and increasingly so as we enter trade negotiations with the world the yes, reason those, those trade those, negotiations yeah I know a lot of those labour heartlands the reason that the industry isn't there anymore is because it's, it's free trade allowed them to be those products to be produced much more cheaply in other parts of the world and uh, and, and those left behind communities felt as if well they felt exactly what they were which was left behind so is 
do you think right we're gonna take take a different direction now because we've <laughs> i've realized we've got to none of the questions that i i wanted to ask but that's that's kind of okay that normally happens i talked to when i talked to matthew um thompson from best of belfast he was very up on the fact that you should he he suggested to me that to do an interview you should write a list of questions and then just throw them away <laughs> yes, <laughs> which I find fun, but then I do often find myself going, "Oh no, I really wish I'd got to that." But well, it's 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 the only thing that stops you from doing that is is time, because I'm sure whoever's listening to this will not listen for four hours. No, no, yeah, um, not. Just... I think a much a much more successful approach to interviews is is is, is well is to listen and just have a, have a conversation. And what interests you should hopefully interest your audience, but you don't have unlimited time having said that i will interject an ever so slight um observation which was there was a scottish american um late night talk show host who i'm a huge fan of his name's craig ferguson oh he craig used to have ferguson, a, a fantastic on, interviewer on, on he used to have a show on uh, cbs um in, uh, it came after david letterman and now stephen colbert and 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 craig ferguson was replaced by james corton but anyway that sets the scene. He used to have a ritual whereby when his guest would come on, he would rip up his list of questions and throw it over his shoulder. And they would talk about whatever he fancied talking about. Sometimes it was a movie. Sometimes it was, you know, their travels. Sometimes it was their life. And I, I, I adored that show and still watch many clips from it. But, you know, it's evidence of the fact that actually sometimes audiences don't really want to hear the list of questions that you have carefully prepared prior but nonetheless let's return to those lists of questions that yes have having just prepared prior having just suggested that that was a bad idea let's do it <laughs> um do you think there is an emerging northern irish identity you kind of alluded to it earlier when you talked about um what was it you said about the that young people designate themselves as other here more and more so they're not we're not yeah. unionist we're not nationalist and in the same way you find that more young people are designating themselves as northern irish rather than british or irish which is just our parents wouldn't even have most of them anyway wouldn't <laughs> have countenanced the idea that there was a northern irish identity it's like you were british or you were irish and that like framed our politics for so long and obviously i don't need to tell you you like anything but do you think that with our generation that we have a Northern Irish like identity emerging that like transcends those kind of sectarian divides, that there's something that we have like a shared culture now emerging more and more that you're seeing in things like Dairy Girls or um, I don't want to say Mrs. Brown's Boys, but <laughs> you know what I mean? There's like a, there seems to be like a prevailing culture emerging that was maybe, maybe not there in that there would have been like cultural heritage that was Irish or British before, whereas we're now kind of amalgamating our own one. Or am I just like completely reading into this? Maybe, I mean, very quickly on Dairy Girls. The reason the Dairy Girls is so successful is because it represented something that we all wanted to do, was, was, which was poke fun at our own culture, at our own past. It was the same reason that Give My Head Peace was, was so successful in the past. First of all, on this, the facts speak for themselves in some ways. More people designate as other than ever before, and more people, as you say, describe themselves as Northern Irish than ever before. On the flip side of that, the people who identify as unionist or nationalist, the stats show that 
they're more fervent, more passionate about those designations than they have been over the last decade. So there's a polarizing effect happening there. And the other thing is that identifying as other is not does not equate with a Northern Irish identity necessarily. So it's not as if those who are unionist and nationalist can't feel as if they have a Northern Irish identity and that only people who are other can feel that way. So those stats don't necessarily add, they, they don't necessarily add up to a Northern Irish identity is becoming more popular. I think the reality is, and I think we read into this concept sometimes too much, the reality is that the Northern Irish identity is real, but it will never be the same for anyone. And I'm, I'm never terribly surprised by this. If you ask someone from London, right, and someone from Newcastle about their Englishness and what makes them English, or if you ask somebody from, I don't know, Edinburgh or Glasgow, and somebody from Shetland Islands, but, you know, what is it about them that makes them Scottish? What's their Scottishness? You're going to get really different answers. And yet nobody, at least on the outside, would deny that there is an English or well, particularly with Scotland, a Scottish culture and a Scottish identity. Any unionist that you will ask will know that their identity, if it is, you know, that their unionist identity is not the same as an English unionist, a Scottish unionist, or a Welsh unionist. And every Republican will know that their Republican identity is different from a Republican from Dublin. And that's driven by shared experiences. So where I think sometimes people get it wrong is that, you know, people talk about sectarian divide, and that's a very real thing. But I don't think sectarian divide is the same as discussing, debating, sometimes passionately, constitutional issues, you know, United Ireland versus UK, and that somehow having those conversations is not conducive to a healthy Northern Irish identity. I, you know, I don't really buy that. The good, I mean, as I said earlier, I was born only a couple of months after the Good Friday Agreement, and... Um, you know, the purpose of that agreement, it wasn't to, to neuter or to remove the differences in opinions that that people had. It was to just fix and frame it in a safe and inclusive way and allow a peaceful way to negotiate those issues. So I, I don't think it, it, you know, that, I don't know, having a debate on a, a political television show about United Ireland versus UK, I don't see that as necessarily sectarian and i don't think that ignoring or not talking about the constitutional position of northern ireland constitutes a lack of progress i think it's just about priorities right so um i know you said we'll, we'll try to avoid talking about covid for example but look in the coronavirus epidemic a couple apart from a couple of bumps along the road at the start our government has worked very effectively together and the reason they have is because a conscious decision was made which was that we consider this issue to be paramount and we're going to put this issue above any other issue, uh, above our, our political identity. If in the future we can do the same thing with health, with housing, with mental health, with education, if it can be considered a priority, then I don't see any reason why it couldn't be dealt with with the same um, you know, collaboration and, and, and inclusiveness. I'm not sure. Yeah, so... That's a long answer to your question. That's but... that's all right. Do you think that the do you think that coronavirus will have changed people's opinions on what's like politically possible here, and said, well, you know, you work together because it was a big issue there. Why can't you sort the rest of the country out? Pr- probably because even when times were good, even when you know you had the Chuckle Brothers, and then you had Marlene, and then you had 
I'm not sure what the name for. I've never heard it called Marlene. That's amazing. Marlene was Martin and Arlene. <laughs> Do you remember yeah. that one? No, I, d- I didn't hear that when that was happening. That's amazing. <laughs> well, even even when you had those times, it was still really obvious that those. And the reason that they were given that name is because you know it was ironic because they had enormous differences that we would call them by some you know um, shortened friendly name. Whereas now, I mean. I remember the last time i mean occasionally right in, in, in the coronavirus something pops up like british army soldiers going into the old maze site and operating it or something like that but apart from that it, it, it hasn't really happened that way i think actually in northern ireland and beyond people will have looked at what has happened politically and economically and said hold on why can't we always do that i mean the subvention from the uk government over coronavirus has been i mean by any measure enormous and I think reasonable people could ask the question: How come you can do this now, but you 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 know you can't do this on other issues? And incidentally, that's you know down to a change of government as well. I'm sure that if you had the austerity government of of 2010 to 2017 in power, you wouldn't have had the same kind of they wouldn't have played the same role in in the coronavirus, and maybe the furlough scheme would have been different. So there is a change over there, but. Uh, people could could rightly look at our government and say, how come you can do that for, uh, whether it's uh, inject large amounts of money, essentially nationalise large parts of the economy, or in Northern Ireland, overcome constitutional issues to deal with quite practical health reasons. How come you could do that then and not something else? I mean, the stats will show after this, but I, I would imagine that mental health in the UK will kill a significant proportion of people um, in one way or the other, that could be comparable to the coronavirus pandemic when all is said and done. And yet we don't treat mental health with the same level of urgency. And there are obvious reasons for that, but it's an interesting way to look at it and say, well, you know, if our government can work together in one way, why can't it in another? Well, that seems like a beautiful, positive note to finish on. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, hopefully we can uh, we can get to a point in which you know, Northern Ireland politics operates sensibly based on ration or rationale and, and logic. Well, I, would, I, would, <laughs> I would encourage, yeah, I would encourage your readers to, to check out Challenges NI to yeah, see if please, there's anything um, on there that... If there's, if there's anything you want to plug, do it now. <laughs> oh, well, do you know what? It was, it, I well, during this lockdown and before, it's, it's been great. It's a platform for uh, young people. I said earlier, we, we started off really with, with the events and then after that, I kind of thought, no, we want to give young people an even greater opportunity to, to, to dive into politics in a way that is more than 280 characters on Twitter. Uh, and so if you check out our site, you will see articles. I mean, they're 850, 900 words from young people. They're, they're in-depth, they're creative, they're passionate, they're often focused on solutions. Um, what they present to you is a generation that, you know, shares the concerns of their parents, shares some of the answers that their parents had but presents them in an entirely different way. And I think that's a really, a really positive thing. What I, what I wanted to do was, was show that young people, you know, uh, c- could talk about politics without hot takes or snipey sort of comments on Twitter. And, uh, and over this pandemic, for, uh, over this lockdown, for example, I worked on a series called Imagination in Isolation, a brilliant zingy title. And, you know, I've been... It, it's it's been a, a joy to read some of the stuff from from other young people um, uh, on their solutions to the world. Um, so you know what well, we we have articles on there from everything under the sun, Brexit, Black Lives Matter, health, 
Stormants, the climates, we have it, we have it from everyone. It's un- impartial, it's not for profit, and you know, it's a refreshing place to go. And I, I'd encourage you to check us out on on Twitter and, and, and on Facebook and um and, and see if anything on there takes your fancy. Well, I will there you go. That's the pitch. There's your pitch. I'll put the link in the description below. Oh, good stuff. Um but yeah, thanks very much for the for the chat. Listen, thank you. That's very enjoyable. I'm not sure if there was it. I'm not sure if we've come to a solution or a conclusion on anything, but uh, probably not. But well, we, no. <laughs> why worry yourself with that? Quite right. Quite right. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this show, don't forget to subscribe on Facebook, on Twitter, and to this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to our email list if you like. And most importantly, tell all your friends about what a fantastic listen this podcast was. Until next time, thanks very much.